Hello and welcome to A Long Time in Finance with Jonathan Ford and Neil Collins in partnership with Briefcase.News, the service that brings intelligent curation and analysis to your media monitoring. The Conservative leadership race has been winnowed down to its final two contestants. It's been dubbed by some a battle of ideas between former Chancellor Rishi Sunak and Foreign Secretary Liz Truss. But what exactly are these ideas they're battling about? Well, when it comes to economics, there are certainly plenty of differences. Sunak is pitching himself as the continuity Thatcher candidate. He's seeking to rein in public spending after all the splurging on the never-never of the Johnson years. He wants tax cuts, but is cautious about their timing. Truss, meanwhile, is the radical go-for-growth candidate, who claims Sunak and the Treasury orthodoxy have choked off growth, She wants an emergency budget to scrap national insurance rises, green levies and the planned corporation tax rise to a tune of £30 billion. So to pick through these prospectuses in Neil's garden, we're here on a a slightly cloudier day than last time, but Neil's still wearing his nice hat. Quite right too. (laughs) Yes, yes. We're joined by Duncan Weldon, author of 200 Years of Muddling Through, An Economic History of Britain, an economics correspondent from the BBC, as was, and also a great friend of the show. So welcome, Duncan. Thank you for having me. It's great to see you again. Let's start with Growth with Truss or Thatcher Redux with Sunak. Before we look at their plans, let's think about the economic state of the UK. What are the key problems that an incoming prime minister needs to fix? Okay, so the key short-term problem that's going to face any incoming prime minister is that inflation is at a 40-year high. It's at a 40-year high. It's approaching 10%. It's expected to be above 12% by this autumn. And that's meaning sort of the biggest hit to the cost of living since the modern records began. That's the immediate problem. Sitting behind that is really a sort of 10, 15-year period in which growth has been really very sluggish. So you've had this really sluggish decade and a half, and now we're being hit by sky-high inflation and falling living standards. Okay, so it's stag followed by inflation, but now we're getting (laughs) stagflation, which is a right old witch's brew. (laughs) Let's think about the candidates and what they're suggesting. Sunak seems to be preaching a return to Margaret Thatcher's brand of economic management. Whether that's actually what he'll do in practice, we'll we'll, we'll remain to be seen. Well, he certainly hasn't done it so far as Chancellor, (laughs) as we've pointed out more than once here. As as they used to say on checks, words and figures do not agree. He claims to be a... (laughs) tax-cutting chancellor, but has in fact raised taxation to a level not seen for a generation or more. And I don't think that's a great background for him to claim that he's the heir to Margaret Thatcher. Well, to be fair, Mrs Thatcher did start by raising taxes. It was only later in her term of office that she cut them. And I think that's what Rishi would probably say. I'm, I'm going to be prudent. I'm going to stick to the, to the plan, get the finances under control, and then let growth go by reducing tax. But what do you think? I, mean, I think there is, I think there is a, a, I think it's on one level, there's a big similarity between what Liz Truss has been saying and what Rishi Sunak has been saying. They're both instinctively say they're tax cutters, they're both deregulators, they both favour a smaller state. They're both quite a big break from Boris Johnson, who was not a very traditional conservative in terms of how he fought about the, the yeah. size of the state. The difference, I think, is that, you know, Rishi Sunak says he is a fiscal conservative first. 
you know, he cares about trying to balance the public sector books, about containing public sector government debt to GDP ratios, and he wants to sort that out before he cuts taxes. For Liz Truss, tax cuts come first. I mean, actually, if we're going back to the 80s, you know, Rishi Sunak is the more Thatcherite, and Liz Truss's approach is more that of Ronald Reagan. It's a Reaganite approach. You cut taxes, you hope that speeds up growth, and you keep your fingers crossed. Yeah, the well, last, about, the last the time we did boom? that, I, mean, I was going to say, the last time we had a dash for growth, it ended very badly with yeah. uh, Heath and Barber. Mm. But I think that's the difference. It's a question of emphasis, and it's a question of timing. And yeah, I mean, I've been surprised by quite how aggressive Liz Truss is being in terms of the tax cuts she's putting on the table at a time that interest rates are rising, at a time that government debt to GDP is at, what, 100% now. So one of the ways she's, she's characterised Sunak's sort of approach to the public finances is to say he's basically going to take us back into another bout of austerity, you know, a bit like in the 2010s with David Cameron and basically growth, which was, has faltered since then. And it's very startling when you look at charts of economic growth, the extent to which that austerity period in the early 2010s and the post sort of financial crisis period really knocked UK economic growth for six. Is a kind of austerity period, if that's what it really amounts to, the right thing to, to do? I mean, it's really tough at the moment, isn't it? I mean, you know, we, um, the last time I was on this show, we were talking about the 1970s when everything yeah. went wrong. And yeah. this feels like a time like that when everything is going wrong at once. And it's hard to know what policy should do. I mean, I agree in general that growth for the last decade has been so much slower than the decade before the financial crash. You know, if, if the economy had grown between 2009 and 2019 yeah. at the same pace it had grown in the decade before 2008... GDP per head would be about £6,000 higher, you know, a material sum. Something has gone wrong. It's hard to say that what Britain needs now is much tighter fiscal policy. Right. But on the other hand, you know, when debt GDP is at 100%, when interest rates are rising, when the government's debt bill is rising, it doesn't seem, when inflation is really high, a big fiscal giveaway when you've got inflation heading towards 12%, doesn't sound particularly sensible either. No, it certainly doesn't. And one of the things which is terribly important is to keep the confidence of the markets to be able to raise the deficit that's required without force-feeding them. Or perhaps you might say we have to force-feed the markets more debt because otherwise they wouldn't pay up. I mean, how much do you think that is going to impact if, for the sake of argument, we got a prime minister who was going to say, well, we'll add another £30 billion to the spending. What I mean, would the impact on the markets be of that? I think you'd see the impact. I think the first impact you'd see would be from the Bank of England. I think if the government says we're going to cut taxes, you know, in September, October, by £30 billion, add £30 billion of demand into the economy as inflation is heading 12%, I think the bank will say at that point, OK, we need to raise interest rates even faster than we are currently doing. I think rather than looking at something like 3% next year, you're looking at something like 3.5-4%. So you're straight away seeing, you know, the government is injecting demand into the economy on one hand, and the bank is pulling it back out the other way. And that obviously has an impact on the gilts market. The moment you're looking at higher interest rates, you're looking at higher borrowing costs, you know, the government is suddenly spending more on its interest bill at the same time as it's taxing less, and the public finances start to look a bit more dicey than they already do. 
Yeah, they certainly would. And given the Bank of England's recent record of failing to raise interest rates, I wonder whether they really are truly independent, as they're supposed to be, or whether they've seen Trust coming, who is making threatening noises about reviewing the position, and whether or not they have the reviewing what position? The independence of the bank. Okay. She has hinted that the independence of the bank should be reviewed. She hasn't said anything else, but that was enough, I think, to send a shot across the bows. But given the fact that they have been so slow to raise interest rates, and they are now still so low by anything other than the recent history comparison seems to me that either they become another arm of the government or they may raise rates not to 3%, but rather more than that, which would have quite an impact uh, on the economy, but might produce inflation rather nearer to their target level of 2%. The bank is quite an easy punching bag for politicians and for contenders in this leadership election when inflation is where inflation is and no one wants inflation to be that high. I feel some of their attacks on the bank haven't been exactly fair, because what they say is the bank has let inflation get out of control. They don't say the bank shouldn't have provided as much support as it did to households, firms, the government in 2020 and 2021. They don't look at what the counterfactual might have been. I actually think if Liz Truss wins and becomes prime minister and pushes ahead with this tax cutting plan, her criticism of the bank is going to be the opposite one. She's, um, you know, at the moment saying the bank has been too loose. If the bank responds to that, as I think the bank would and starts hiking aggressively, she'll start saying, I've got a plan for growth and the bank are crushing the economy. That will be the the, the deep irony. She'll have attacked them for being too loose. And then the moment they say, fine, we're going to tighten policy, she won't like it. But but it's absolutely right. The last thing she wants to do is to basically take responsibility into her own hands for interest rates, because that will give her another political fire front to fight on. Sure, but if she starts criticising the bank from the position of being prime minister, then essentially the bank's independence is seriously compromised. And she can't simultaneously blame them and say that they are independent. Yeah, I think this will be one of those awkward conversations that (laughs) civil servants have with any new prime minister when they explain what they should and what they shouldn't be commenting on when it comes to economic policy and market sensitive... um, And anyway, the the bank would just say change the mandate. But anyway, we don't want to get too bogged down Mm. into the bank. To come back to Truss's plans, because she's been a little bit more detailed, Mm. I think, than Sunak, Mm. who's merely said he's an extremely prudent chap, but he'll he'll follow through with the details in the small print at a later date. Probably well, wise, it's, it's, probably it's hard wisely. for Sunak, you know, given he was Chancellor for two years. Yeah, I agree. Say, he, can't, yeah. he can hardly set out a wildly yeah. different plan. Uh, mm. <laughs> but Truss has, has been accused by some, as, we've, as Neil was sort of suggesting, of, of uh, being a student of the Erdogan School of Economics, <laughs> <laughs> named after the Turkish president, who seems to have, uh, <laughs> oh, <laughs> have yes. managed to stir up a fairly fruity rate of inflation. <laughs> Yes, down you, in Ankara. You cut, um, intre- you cut inflation by cutting interest rates. Yeah, yeah. And then you get hyperinflation. Right, exactly. But, and so, but, but Truss's response to all this, i.e. you're a fruitcake who's going to set inflation absolutely on fire, is to say, no, 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 all my plans, and this probably comes back to your point about Mr. Reagan, are supply-side reforms, lowering national insurance, it's going to get people into work, productivity will go shooting up and all the rest of it. Do you think that's just uh, wishful thinking on her part? Or is, is there any substance in that? Look, I can see the case that in the medium term, if you cut corporation tax, 
and effectively raise the returns on investment, then maybe firms will invest more and that will help the supply side in the medium term. You've got to put against that, though, that we had a decade of cutting corporation tax in Britain okay, and right. firms didn't respond. Business investment was appallingly weak, so you know, it hasn't yeah. worked in recent experience. Yeah. I can see if you cut taxes, you know, payroll taxes like national insurance, maybe you may encourage more people to work. But when you look at the sort of labour market problems in Britain at the moment, you know, it's mainly either that people have left the country, that they are now on long-term sick, or that they are older people who've retired early. And I don't see many of those free pools of potential workers responding to lower taxes. So I yeah. think you can make the theoretical case this will help the supply side in the medium term. But in the short term, the kind of tax cuts she's talking about really are just going to add to demand. And yeah, if you cut people's national insurance bill, then they'll have a bit more money in their pay packet at the end of the month. And in the first month, they'll feel good about it. But if that leads to higher interest rates and higher inflation, yeah. they won't feel good about it for very long. Yeah, because, I mean, in your book, you wrote about the problems in the 1970s. Mm. I have to say, the more I look at this, the more I'm ineluctably drawn to the conclusion mm. that if there is a parallel here that we're living through, it's more the 70s and the 80s. Mm. You said that basically when Britain faced, basically the 70s, Britain faced a lot of shocks which hit its ability to produce outputs, such as weak sterling, tick, and higher oil prices, yeah. tick. But its leaders responded in the wrong way, trying to kickstart growth and just created unbelievable amounts of inflation. You, are you persuaded by your own words that that is where we are now? It's a different crisis in some ways in that the labour market is very different. You know, yeah. the 1980s did it's not happen. unionised. So, yeah, the so. 1980s did happen. It's a different economy to the 1970s. But yeah, the fundamental problem is what's really struck me listening to this debate about inflation from trusts and from Sunak is... They're not engaging with the reality of why Britain has sky-high inflation at the moment. And most of it is because energy prices are really high, food prices are really high, global supply chains are disrupted. All of this just means that because of these shocks, Britain is a poorer country than we wanted it to be. And the real debate is about mm. how do we as a country apportion that pain? It's not how do we make the pain go away by cutting taxes? I think that's a very astute analysis and mm. I don't think any politician would ever dare voice it because to say that I have nothing to offer you but blood, toil, tears and sweat <laughs> is not exactly Who an election-winning <laughs> <laughs> formula. Poor, but yes. I think yeah. that you're right. Actually, I wonder whether we may be prepared to accept some pain provided it was reasonably equally spread and was put down to the cost of fighting the war, which is essentially the underlying cause of this. I agree. It's really hard. You know, politicians like to talk about sharing the proceeds of growth, sort of, you know, allocating the costs of pain is a very different debate to be having. <laughs> but I think, I think that's another... You know, that's another analogy of the 70s. I think if you look at the 1970s or the 1920s, decades in which Britain has had these really, you know, external shocks and pain to allocate, politics really struggles to cope with that. What you get is volatile politics and bad economic policy because our political system really struggles to cope with that sort of debate. Yes, well, you know, I will uh, vote for anybody who tells me lies, beautiful <laughs> lies. <laughs> I, have, I have to say, it hadn't struck me that our political system was failing to cope with <laughs> with the distributional <laughs> consequences of low growth. <laughs> there it is. Can we talk for a second about the intellectual influences which the two candidates have cited? Because I think they're both quite interesting. So Sunak has plumped for, unsurprisingly, mm -hmm. 80s boy that he is, yeah. for Nigel Lawson, who obviously 
I'd say has quite an interesting guy, mixed record as Chancellor. He was indeed a tax cutter, which I think is a bit that Sunak is sort of cosplaying. But he also, of course, presided over the Lawson boom, which was where his the controls <laughs> kind of ran, ran away with him. Yes. But what's your thought on that? What's your judgment? A, I'd be interested to know whether you think Lawson is a good role model mm-hmm. for now. And what it says about Sunak, that he would sort of uh, reference this character. I mean, I think from Sunak's point of view, he's the safe choice to go for. Yeah. Margaret Thatcher's most successful chancellor in many ways. Second yeah. most, anyway. You go for how? Or? Oh, definitely, yes. Interesting. But, um, yes. but I think Lawson is <laughs> but definitely Lawson a... Lawson is the one we're focusing yeah. on. Yeah, but Lawson is definitely a sort of a serious figure. If you go back and read, you know, Lawson's May Lecture on so economic policy. Yeah. That's a serious speech, engaging with the academic debate, the policy debate in the 1980s. Yeah. You know, he's a proper, big, serious economic thinker who knew his business. And for the first half of his time as chancellor, you know, at least a very competent one, I think what's damaged his historical reputation is I think you know, his fundamental mistake towards the mid to late 80s was to assume that you know, inflation was conquered as a problem. You know, he didn't quite use the Gordon Brown language of we've conquered boom and bust or no return to boom and bust. But there's a strong sort of sense there that, you know, by sort of 86, 87, this sense, that, OK, the hard bit has been done. Mm-hmm. The, the economy is being deregulated, liberalized. Now we can you know, put our foot back on the accelerator and then you, know, you get into the Lawson boom very quickly. Suddenly inflation is a problem again. Not as much of a problem as it was in the um, 1970s or as indeed today. Yeah. But you, suddenly you've again got high inflation. You know, you have to press down your back into that sort of stop-go cycle and you get, you know, that quite nasty recession in the early 90s. Yeah. Well, his problem was that he became obsessed with shadowing the Deutschmark. That was his lodestar. In the Note for listeners, part. the Deutschmark was a currency <laughs> abolished in 1999. Uh, thank you very much for that historical <laughs> note. Um, but in the second half of his chancellorship, that was what obsessed him. And that was basically his downfall, in my view. Yeah. And then uh, the moment you've done that, you've basically sort of outsourced your monetary policy to the Bundesbank and that, you know, you're forced to sort of move with them yeah. and the interest rates that are appropriate for the German economy or, or the West German economy then to really date this. Are not quite, you know, the rates appropriate for Britain. Okay, so trust, even more interesting call. She's asked which economists agree. Now, to be fair, this isn't a kind of intellectual kind of lodestar, but she was asked which economists agree with you and your plans. And she said she nominated Patrick Minford. Now, he's a genuinely quite interesting figure. I think he came, came to prominence in the 1980s as a monetarist. And more recently, he was a, an arch Brexit supporter who basically suggested dropping all tariffs unilaterally and running down the car industry if that was without losing much sleep, if that was the consequence. It doesn't sound like a recipe for retaining many red walls. <laughs> what do you make of that? Do you, I mean, do you, is Patrick- yeah, I, I think she was. I think she was under pressure this morning, and you know, the name that came to mind was Patrick Minford. Um, and you know, Patrick Minford, he's been around for a long time, monetarist in the eighties, member of the Council of Economic Wise Men in the nineteen nineties under Ken Clark, I believe. And yeah, most prominent recently as a prominent Brexiteer, unilateral free trade, drop all tariffs. I mean, you're right. It doesn't really sound like the retaining the red wall agenda, does it? I think this is going to be the problem that whoever wins has, that they're both more traditional conservatives. And Boris Johnson was not a very traditional conservative prime minister. You know, if you're being charitable about Boris Johnson... He pulled well, somebody together. has to be, I suppose. To be chari- I'm oh, always charitable. No, no, let the man yeah, speak. Char- you know, as, if you're being charitable, <laughs> you say, here is a man that pulled together a really 
unlikely, unusual political coalition by promising tax cuts to some people and more spending to others and wrapping it all in a very hardline approach to Brexit. If you're being uncharitable, you say that's the cake, isn't he? Want that is cake and he want to eat it, you know, he want to spend money here, cut taxes there. That approach is over. Neither Rishi Sunak nor Liz Truss is going to do it. And I think whoever is the winner is maybe going to be able to appeal more to you know, inverted commas, traditional conservative voters. Yeah. But I think those four dozen seats they won off Labour in the north of the Midlands, Wales, they're going to really struggle with either of these two. Do you think there is time between now and the next election for, let's say, a Sunak-style budget this year to produce enough headroom to be able to give them a little bonus enough to get them re-elected? I think they're in a real problem at the moment. So they keep saying they've got £30 billion of wiggle room relative to their fiscal this is targets. The sort of, this is the first, so they, they keep talking about it as if it's £30 billion we've got to spend. You know, <laughs> sitting spare, in the bank. Yeah, in the bank yeah. And then, of course, that's £30 billion based on forecasts made in March, forecasts which are now completely out of date. They don't include the full impact of the war in Ukraine. They have inflation at about... Five and a half, six percent, not twelve percent. They've or got the growth huge faster. Costs, yeah, they, yeah, they don't have that debt service cost. Yes. They don't include the fifteen billion pounds they did in emergency cost of living mm. support already. I mean, that that thirty billion pounds is <laughs> so it's it, already it's not, spent yeah, it about twice. Yeah, it's already been spent, and that I think fif- the mice have been at it. <laughs> <laughs> and that fifteen billion pounds of sort of emergency help with cost of living, with energy bills, whatever. I mean, that's in theory a one-year program, but. I mean, if energy prices stay this high, that will presumably have to be rolled forward in some way next year. This all adds up. I'm not sure there is much wiggle room there at all. Now, you can change the fiscal targets. You can say previous fiscal targets were too conservative. I think Britain's had either nine or ten different fiscal frameworks since 2009. You know, you change these things every 18 months. That wouldn't be a surprise. But the idea that there is this sort of kitty of money available to spend... It's a political fiction. But Liz has, to be fair, she has already nailed herself Mm. to the mast of the current fiscal framework. She's not sort of said, actually, we need to look again at all these sort of things. She's she said, I can do all this within the the current targets we have. So it'd be very Mm. interesting to see how she gets on with that. (laughs) Now, I know it's very unfair to do this because uh, it's a very difficult thing to ask anyone. But but imagine that you were, uh, rather than critiquing (laughs) these two candidates, you were jammed in the uh, Captain Kirk's Mm. chair in number 10 and told (laughs) to to set phases to stun and get cracking. Do you have a sense in your own mind of what would be a sort of sensible way forward right now? I think macroeconomic policy is almost always about trade-offs. And at the moment, because of all these external shocks, because of supply chains, energy prices, war in Europe, whatever, the trade-offs are harder. But I think what Britain probably needs is a bit of a different policy mix. I think there is a case for a bit of easier fiscal policy, not in terms of broad-based tax cuts, but in terms of targeted support to low-income households for whom energy bills are a bigger share of their expenditure and to firms for energy prices. I mean, you know, firms have been really left out of the support packages so far and energy costs for firms are now turning otherwise viable firms at risk of closing. And it's worth supporting them if we think of energy prices will be lower. Now, the trade-off comes if you're doing a bit more targeted support to firms and households, you accept that means the bank is going to hike more than it would have otherwise. So I'm saying what you probably need is a bit looser fiscal policy, a bit of tighter monetary policy, and hopefully... If the bank is able to hike a bit more, 
that might give a bit of a fillip to the value of sterling. And I think, you know, at a time we're importing a lot of inflation, stronger sterling would not be unhelpful. But this is not a great policy mix for asset prices. It's not a great policy mix for house prices, which tends to match well. conservative um, <laughs> voters. So I'm not sure it's one that, you know, the next chancellor will be that keen on. But I think that's probably <laughs> the best of a bad bunch I can think it of. It sounds like another 200 weeks of muddling through. <laughs> <laughs> 200 weeks? Yeah, pretty <laughs> <laughs> That was A Long Time in Finance with Jonathan Ford and Neil Collins. Editing and production is by Nick Hilton and our sponsorship partner is briefcase.news. Join us again next week.